He is worthy of our praise, amen, for a myriad of reasons, but especially because what he has accomplished and what he has promised. If you have your Bibles and you want to join me this morning for our reflection on the gospel, I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one under the chair in front of you and feel free to use that this morning. If you don't have one of, a Bible of your very own or know someone who needs a Bible, then uh, feel free to keep that as our gift to you this morning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 these words. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me." For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the promise of your word. I thank you for the truth and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather around your word that we might reflect on the truth of the gospel. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in this time as we remember the message of the gospel, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would kindle the flame of a passion and a love for you and for your word and for the truth of the gospel. That we would not merely be a people who understand the gospel, but we would be a people who are experiencing the gospel daily. That we might declare your praises and preach that others might believe as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. When I was in the fifth grade, We had throughout elementary school a program called D.A.R.E. Do y'all remember D.A.R.E.? Drug Awareness Resistance Education. And we had a police officer that would come in and he would constantly talk to us uh, every time that he came about the dangers of drug and uh, drug abuse. And in the fifth grade, you got an opportunity to write an essay about why D.A.R.E. was important. And if you won this essay contest when you finished your fifth grade year, you were announced as the winner. And they, I think they gave it to one boy and one girl. And you got this big medallion that you got to wear as you graduated fifth grade or whatever. And for whatever reason, I determined that I wanted that medallion. I wanted that opportunity. I wanted that privilege. And so I worked hard and I wrote the essay. And sure enough, I won. And I got that medallion, and I walked across the stage, and then it was something that I I had for a period of time. But some point in that summer, you know what happened to that medallion? It got put in a drawer. And later on, it was put in a box. And later on, I found it as an adult, and you know what I did with that medallion? I threw it away. 
You know the last time that I talked about winning the D.A.R.E. medallion? I don't know. You know how often I talk about winning the D.A.R.E. medallion? Never. And I fear that, unfortunately, for many of us, that is the relationship that we have with the gospel. That it was something that was really, really, really important back before we were saved and at the moment that we were saved. And when we think about the gospel, most often I have found that what we do is we immediately put it in a box that says the gospel is the Christian sales pitch for lost people. And what we need the gospel for is to get people saved. What we needed the gospel for was to be saved. And so the gospel gets put in this box that is some point in our past when we were children, for me when I was nine years old, that I needed to believe that I might be saved and then we need to go beyond the gospel into discipleship and Christian maturity. And then, by, based on the transformation that has happened in my life by the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel, now I need to get busy for Jesus. And I need to get to church, and I need to read my Bible, and, and the experience of God's love for me, in my heart and in my mind, the way I walk through my life, I feel loved by God when I'm at church and reading my Bible and doing all the right Christian things. My felt experience of God's happiness with me is not tied to a promise of the gospel, but my performance for the Lord right now. In these verses, Paul tells us who the appropriate audience for the gospel is. He says, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Okay, Paul calls them brothers, says I preached this gospel, and you received it. You received the gospel, you are brothers. Is Paul talking to saved people or unsaved people? Saved people. The Corinthians were a church that Paul pastored and he loved. These are Christians. And Paul is speaking to these Christians and saying, I need to remind you of the gospel. And if you read any of Paul's letters, you will find that his pattern is always, here's the gospel. It has transformed you. And the second half of his letter, or some point near the end, he goes, gospel doctrine leads to gospel living. Here's what the gospel has done in you. Here's how it should change how you live. Every single time. Paul writes to Christians, he reminds them of the gospel. Because the gospel is something we easily forget. And I don't mean that we, the pieces, parts of the gospel and the gospel presentation go out of our mind. I'm talking about our felt experience of God's love and grace and mercy. We forget the promises of the gospel, day in, day out. And we constantly turn from trusting in Jesus to trusting in me. And so Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel which you received, and here's the thing, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved. Is the gospel past tense for a Christian or is it present tense for the Christian? It's now. It's not just the gospel that saved you. It is by the gospel which you are, present tense, currently being saved with the anchored promise that in the end, it's the gospel that saved you, the gospel that is transforming you, and the gospel which secures your eternal life in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something for that nine-year-old little boy who needed to be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for this 36-year-old preacher who walks daily with the Lord. And for you, whichever side of 36 you might fall on, the audience of the gospel is for everyone. Paul says this is true if you hold fast. A friend of mine, a preacher and a church planner here in Clarksville, he loved Derek Levandusky is his name. He loves to say the gospel's slippery. It's slippery because we get so busy with our lives and busy doing for Jesus that the promise that we can be with Jesus slips right out of our hands. And so we have to hold fast to the gospel. And it's slippery because it's so simple. He shows us the audience of the gospel in verse 1 and 2, but he shows us the essence of the gospel in verses 3 through 8. In verses 3 through 8, there's two phrases, prominent phrases repeated, according to the scriptures. Two times he says, Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul makes it clear. I know we love three points in a poem, but Paul only has two points. The gospel only has two points. Jesus died for your sins according to the plan of God. It's not simply that Jesus died. Though the evidence that he died was that he was buried. He was not buried alive. Only psychos bury people alive. The evidence of the fact that Jesus really did die on the cross is the fact that they put him in the ground and they put a tomb in front of it. He was done. The Romans confirmed it. And they were really good at what they did. But it's not simply the fact that Jesus died. All humans die. That's the curse that we fall under. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death. Death is the evidence of sin. So it's not just simply that Jesus died. It's why Jesus died. He died for your sins and my sins and not for any of his own. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sins. We love to focus on Mel Gibson's movie of, of Jesus Christ. Why has his name slipped my mind? Passion of the Christ, right? And many of these other things. But here's the thing. The only thing that a movie can show you is the physical suffering of a man. It will never show you what happened in those three hours of darkness when Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for your eternity of damnation and hell and mine. It will never, it will show you the crucifixion. It will never show you the cross. And you can feel real sorry for the man who took that beating, but the truth of the matter is there were many other men who got that as much as that and died in the exact same way. What made Jesus' death on the cross significant and different is why he died, not how he died. He died for you. But the counterweight of the gospel is that he did not stay dead. But in accordance with God's plan, on the third day, he was raised back to life. Unlike anybody else, 
Yes, there were other people who came back to life at other points in their time, other points in history, throughout the Old Testament and even in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The difference was every single one of them had to die again. Yera Lazarus. The other thing was every single one of them had someone else raise them from the dead. Whether it was Jesus or Elijah, no one but God raised his son from the dead. And it was a declaration of his vindication that he was not sinful and did not deserve to die. And it is the securing of your everlasting life. Jesus died the death we deserve, and he was raised to new life that we might receive life we don't deserve. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the promise and the the securing, the collateral, if you will, for our life now in Christ. Not just the promise. Heaven doesn't start on the other side of death. It starts right here, right now, when Jesus promises to be with us. And wherever Jesus is, is where heaven is. Wherever the presence of Christ is and the Spirit of Christ is, is where heaven is. We get to experience heaven now in the joy of knowing the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is with me. And he will never leave me. Why? Because my sins are forgiven. The measure of true Christian maturity is coming to not just understand that promise, but to experience that reality. To grow beyond the place where when I commit a sin, I'm wringing my hands, constantly waiting until I can get to church on Sunday morning because that's the right place where I'm finally going to get in God's presence. I'll sing his praise. I'll make him a little bit happy. Then I'll ask for forgiveness and then I'll feel forgiven. And it's growing beyond the point where I realize that there's something uniquely special that you have to be here in order to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to realize that Christ is with me at all times. And that five-day wait becomes a four-day wait, becomes a three-day wait, becomes a a half-a-day wait until I come to the point when I come to the realization, when I wake up in the morning, Christ is with me, and Jesus loves me, and Jesus is for me. And at one o'clock in the afternoon, when I commit that big sin again, I realize that sin was forgiven at eight o'clock this morning. It's got to be forgiven now. That sin was forgiven by Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 plus years ago. It's done. I don't have to wait till Sunday. I don't have to wait five minutes. I don't have to wait five seconds. All I have to do is call out to Jesus, forgive me. And I receive your forgiveness. And there's no possible way that he cannot love me and grant that instantly because it's already done. It's already paid for. There's nothing that I can do that can undo the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full, that means your sins today, your sins tomorrow, your sins next week, your sins five years from now are already washed away. And the growth in the experience of Christian maturity is coming to believe that, not just in my head, not just in my heart, but in my entire being. To walk in freedom, knowing that if and when I fail, that doesn't change my relationship with Jesus. That doesn't change the fact that God is pleased with me. That doesn't change the fact that God loves me. 
God's not going to be cold and distant from me. I don't have to hide from him. Instead, I simply have to turn from me in faith and receive the forgiveness that is already there. And you can experience that here and now when you choose to believe the gospel. Not just believe it for that nine-year-old kid or that 14-year-old kid or that 20-something-year-old young man or woman who believed in the gospel. Believe it now. Believe it this afternoon. Believe it tomorrow morning when you wake up. Believe it every single time that your sin and Satan wants to tell you God's not happy with you right now. God cannot be displeased with you. God cannot be disappointed with you. Ever. Period. Disappointment is someone failing to live up to your expectations. Can a God who knows everything ever not know if you're going to fulfill what you're about to do? Can God who is omniscient ever have an expectation of you that he doesn't know whether or not you already will commit? He already knows if you're going to fail. He already knows if you're going to succeed. And he loves you anyway. So when you're tempted to think that God's up there with a frown on his face and a sourpuss look, looking at you and thinking of you, you're wrong. Because the promise of the gospel says that sourpuss look was laid on Jesus on the cross for you. And if you are in Christ, you're no longer in your sin. And God can't look at his son except in love. That's the truth of the gospel. And Paul goes on in the last one to not only talk about the essence of the gospel, but the experience. We see Paul live it out right here on the pages in front of us. As Paul goes on to give the laundry list of people who can prove that Jesus was really raised from the dead. And he ends in this last thing where he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. My whole life I've read this passage of scripture and I thought, wow, Paul, really You planted the church you're writing to. You wrote most of the New Testament. Are we really supposed to believe that you're the least of the apostles? You are the apostle that broke open the church for the Gentiles and took the gospel to the Gentiles when all of your buddies were being racist. You're the one that went to the ends of the earth. Am I really supposed to believe that you think yourself to be the least of the apostles? And maybe it's just one of those false humility-like things. You know, somebody shows up and gives you a compliment and you feel really uncomfortable. You go, oh no, I'll praise to Jesus. I'm nothing, I'm big. You know, is this just Paul being falsely humili- or falsely humble? Or is this Paul maybe being self-deprecating that he still is beating himself up in front of us? Or maybe Paul is living out on the pages of the very letter that he's writing his daily experience of the gospel. Because he says, I saw my sin I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. We have no need of being afraid of seeing our sin, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when we see our sin, we see our need for our Savior. And it's always at the point that we see our sin that we are met by our Savior. And so when Paul sees his unworthiness In seeing his lowliness, his unworthiness, it's at that lowest point that he receives God's grace. And he meets his Savior. Because as one author puts it, God's love, God's grace is like water. It always flows downhill. 
It always flows to the low places. It always pools at the bottom. So all we have to do is stop trying to climb to the top and not be afraid to see my sin and not be afraid to receive God's grace that's there in my sin. And so Paul says, I then went on to work harder than any of them, but it wasn't me. It's the grace of God in me. The grace of God for me. I see my sin. I meet my Savior. I receive His grace. And He does incredible things through broken people. He does incredible things for the people who are willing to admit their need and receive His grace. And so Paul says, whether it was the other apostles or it was me, we preached and you believed. Is it any wonder we don't talk about the gospel and we're intimidated by the concept of evangelism when the gospel is something we understand, something that we have experienced, and it's not the daily rule and experience of my life. When the gospel is just the Christian sales pitch for lost people, is it any wonder that we aren't comfortable with it? But when it's my daily experience, I see my sin, I meet my Savior, I receive God's grace moment by moment and day after day. When I am being transformed by that truth, then it becomes second nature. Because it's not just something relegated to my past. It is something that is relevant in my present. And so Paul says, as I remember the gospel, as I receive God's grace day after day, I then preach and so you believe. So it's important that we remember the gospel. Not for them out there and not for me back then but for me right where I am, for you right where you're sitting, for you and for your family. When I receive God's grace day after day, moment by moment, I'm a whole lot more willing to give grace to my wife and give grace to my kids and give grace to that person who's arguing with me on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. That's for you who are on Facebook. Or that person that cut me off in traffic, and I'm living in the felt experience of God's grace and God's love because the gospel isn't just some intellectual presentation that I keep in my back drawer for when I'm talking to somebody about believing in Jesus and becoming a Christian. But when it's my reality, my experience, I'm a whole lot more comfortable talking about that Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel. That Jesus died for your sins. He was raised for your everlasting life. Believe it. Receive it. Today. And tomorrow. And this afternoon. And on and on and on as long as God has you here. And watch how that changes your life and your family and this church because the gospel 
transforms lives.